Hey everybody, welcome to the Tech Connect Podcast. I'm John Martin. And I'm Dean Reverman. Well, Dean, what are you doing over there? Oh, you're right. Well, we got a good guest today. We have a guest, period. <laughs> and we need to put the spotlight on our guest. That's right. Period. James Cordy. That's You've right. We've seen him on the podcast before. He's our favorite guest, right? Sure. Yes. We, we tell everybody guests that. Yeah. But he's back for what, the fourth, fifth, sixth time now? We don't know how many times That's you've been here. Count, yeah. But we are glad to have you back. He and gets we, the blue jacket. Uh, exactly. Right. He gets yeah. the blue jacket, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, our topic today, well, you know, I was thinking a little bit about. You've read some of my blog on LinkedIn a few times here and there, and I wrote a post a little while back, and I actually surveyed you guys, I think, ahead of time, and a few other people about reading content about your job and your work mm. outside of work. Mm-hmm. Not something I like to do. I, you know, There's just a lot of content in the world that I want to get a hold of, and stuff related to what I do every day is not part of it, so I don't <laughs> tend to do that. Yeah. But thankfully, I know people like the two of you who will read books or listen to podcasts or watch videos about the work that we do and then tell me all about it so I can get all the insights from it. <laughs> and then you're the smart one. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I seem yeah. like I'm brilliant. Like, look what I know about, you know. So thankfully, that's why Cordy's here today because he has actually spent some time reading a book. He's currently reading a book called The Challenger Customer. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And we've got some great insights about selling to B2B buying groups, understanding this kind of new world of how we market and sell to the people we work with. Mm-hmm. Our bars, this should be a pretty important and useful and understandable conversation to them because you've probably noticed over the years things have changed and you're not just talking to one person anymore. There's a lot of people who have their fingers in every pie and every sales discussion you have and we want to kind of dive into how to how we should be approaching them. And this book has some really good useful tips for that. So we're allowed to get geeky in marketing every now and then, aren't we? We are, yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. we're marketing people. Yeah, it can't it can't always just be always be about you sales technology, yeah, yeah. Technology. or technology. I mean, yeah. come on, you gotta get geeky. Sometimes <laughs> we need a lane. That's yeah. right. So, hopefully, we didn't just lose everybody on this one. <laughs> nope, that's not an episode for me. So, as always, it is time for us to plug in and get connected. Welcome to the Tech Connect Podcast. It's time to get connected. All right. As I mentioned, uh, we have James Cordy with us today. Thank you so much for coming in. We've yeah, actually been trying to get him back on the show for a while, but for some reason, this man's busy. Yeah, he is. He's our digital marketing on. manager here at Blue yeah. Star. He's always got stuff happening. People are always asking him to do things. Uh, so we've got him to come back to our podcast. And part of the reason we're doing this also is because you have been singing the praises of this book. Uh, it's called The Challenger Customer. I will put a link to it in our show notes so you can check it out. The, the actual subtitle of it is Selling to the Hidden Influencer Who Can Multiply Your Results. Uh, Terrible cover. It's really yeah. badly designed cover. If you were just <laughs> shopping on visuals, you would not have picked it out. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to point out that comment should make it clear to you that we also are not being endorsed or, or paid <laughs> no. to, to talk about this book necessarily. No one's asked us to do this. We're getting nothing from this. But there's some useful tips in there. Even though the cover may not be all that great, if you judge a book by its cover, you might not have picked this one up. But there's some cool stuff in it. Yes. Yeah, um, so I, I think maybe first, before we you know get, start getting into some of those bullet points, I kind of want you to maybe just give us a very kind of brief idea of what this book's about and what you understand about like the history of the people who wrote this and some of their sure. other works. Sure. Well, I'll start by saying that <clears throat> I was out on a walk, taking a short break, listening to a marketing podcast there because you go. I'm a nerd <laughs> and I go deep on this stuff. And it was one of those comments where they basically said, oh, yeah, and, you know, 
if you're in B2B marketing, of course you've read the challenger customer because everyone's read the challenger customer. I kind of had one of those moments where I went, I should probably make a note about that book. (laughs) And, um, you know, what I came to find out and just kind of reading about it before I bought it was it was all about B2B marketing and sales, which obviously is what we're involved in. It's what our customers are involved in. And it comes from the same folks that wrote The Challenger Sale, Mm -hmm. which I have not read, Mm -hmm. but I've heard referenced a million times. So Mm -hmm. it kind of had that uh, built-in credibility for me where I went, oh, okay, yeah, I've heard of that. I know that that's, you know, caught a lot of people's attention. So I ordered it. And and yeah, long story short, and I, I haven't gotten all of the way through it yet. In fact, I'm less than halfway through it. But it is about the issue in selling to groups. And, you know, where, where I think it's going to go is trying to give you advice on the best way from a marketing and a sales standpoint to address the issue the, they identify in group decision making, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess a simple way to sum it up is they say, you know, when John Martin is making his individual decision, it's relatively simple for him, assuming he is decisive and can make decisions. But as soon as you add, you know, James Cordy into the mix and Dean Reverman into the mix as stakeholders, it just kind of nosedives in terms of the likelihood that we're going to even make a decision. So really, the one of the main points that's made in the book in the early going is you're not necessarily, of course, there are competitors in any solution selling scenario, right? You're competing with other vendor suppliers. But really, before that, you're competing with the status quo. Yep. And again, again, it, it establishes the idea that organizations, buyers um, have an issue with deciding which problems to solve. And then which solutions are worth pursuing and then ultimately, you know, selecting a supplier. So that's yeah. that's the premise, at least, like I said, to the point that I am so far. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I was reading through uh, some of the past for uh, this group that wrote this book and, the, and that previous book, The Challenger Sale, they kind of mentioned the idea of the reason why they, they took the ideas from that and decided to upgrade it and make this Challenger customer version was that they understood that, hey, it's not just about understanding how to go, how to have an effective and useful sales process, but that you have to know who you're actually selling to. And that's why this this book is kind of focused on this idea of, hey, there's a lot of people who have a stake in this, and you need to understand as much as you can about them and how to and how you're going to approach them in order to get involved here, too. You reminded yeah. me of one more thing I'll add, which is, I believe, to your point, I've done a little bit of background on, on the Challenger sale. The advice they give there is that you know when you have a solution and you have a message put together, you might have one message that's focused on the, you know, the finance stakeholder, one on HR, one for legal, and one for you know the marketing team that's going to use it. So tailoring your message depending on your audience. And what they say in the challenger customer is that that actually has drawbacks. Because a group has competing priorities, that you know in, in tailoring your message so much to each one of those people, you're kind of equipping those people to even kind of dig in more and say, no, 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 I need these things. Well, I need these things, which you know kind of sows that dysfunction in the decision-making process. So instead, you mentioned the, the subtitle, which is selling to the hidden influencer who can multiply your results. Um, one of the things they kind of talk about is breaking down uh, customer types. And we'll get into that probably in a little bit or maybe even in part two of, of this small series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in you know, seeking out the person, they refer to them generically as mobilizers, who, let's just say it's me at Blue Star. If they can reach me, I might have the ability to say, okay, this solution, this this could solve the problem that I think we have. Let me see if I can convince John and Dean that this is the problem worth solving and, you know, championing this, even almost, I love the word they use, irrespective of supplier, just to say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, within our marketing operations, we have some blind spots. I think we need to address them and we can address them with a solution like this one. 
you know, which aligns to some of the things that we do right, in marketing. Right. Which, yeah. Well, and to be fair, they're not much. wrong about that either. And and just in that example you gave, you are someone who is often that I feel like that kind of like that champion for us here at Blue Star. You'll come across some new interesting concept in maybe in marketing, some kind of new tool we can use, and you're the first one that'll try it out, that'll listen to people's pitch about it. Whereas I'm that person who's more of like the no, like just just go away. I don't care about this random email you sent me. I don't care for this message you just sent me on LinkedIn. I don't want to hear about it. I'm not interested. I'm I, we're just fine. So I won't be the one that listens, but you're the one that typically would for sure. And then you might bring that up to my attention or to Dean's attention. And say, hey, this is something useful. I had a conversation with these folks about it. It sounds like a neat idea. Let's try it out. And some you know, and sometimes this stuff works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we found new stuff that's been useful for us. Drift is an example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, we, yep, our chat you know, not to dive too far into that. Yeah, but we, we got into this whole chatbot thing, and it was kind of because you were sort of approached about it. You saw something that was unique and interesting that you weren't expecting, and you got involved in it, started championing it, and now it's something we use regularly and find some benefit from. So Yeah, that's it's one of the neat things is the examples that they give, the scenarios they talk through is you – can see yourself in some of them. So in those seven customer types, there's technically, or no, there are seven, but um, they really focus on six because the seventh is the blocker. That's the person <laughs> that everyone avoids. Right. And you, I don't know if you're quite the blocker. I don't think I'd be the blocker. You might but be the skeptic. I think which, so, yes. Believe it or not, <laughs> the you know high-performing sales reps go after three types of customers out of those seven. And what they refer to as core sales reps generally um, look to connect with the other three. There's no overlap. According right. to the data, right. there's no overlap. The skeptic is one of the people that the high-performing sales rep would go after. Right. Uh, there's some really good information yeah. about that. But. Well, before we get too far ahead of ourselves there, let's kind of pick apart some you – know, I've kind of broken this up into three chunks of information from the book that I want us to kind of dive into. And I'm going to kind of introduce the setup, give you some of the the bullet points and stats that the book provided for us, and then we'll kind of riff on that a little bit. So first of all – the idea of how B2B buying groups and committees work. So we've established, hey, we're in a we're in a new world now where it's very rare for you to find one person who's the decision maker that you have to get in front of and talk to, especially, again, for our VAR audience, I'm thinking, hey, a, a lot of this stuff that you're trying to do and sell is going to impact a lot of people's jobs, from someone in IT to the operations folks to the person who's simply just doing the day-to-day work mm-hmm. to somebody in finance, purchasing execs. There's a lot of people whose businesses and, and jobs are impacted by even something as simple as introducing new barcode scanners. You never know how, yep. how complex of a ripple effect that might have. So the, all of them have stakes. And that's the kind of the idea here is that these buying groups are made up of an average of 5.4 people. Uh, that 0.4 person apparently just doesn't, you know, isn't just, their heart's just not entirely into it. They're know? only part-time. Yeah, they're just kind of, they just kind of show up from time to time, skip a few <laughs> meetings here and there. But it's a, it's a diverse and competing perspectives and priorities that settle, that can often settle for less business value. And the idea behind that being, and I'll let you riff a little further on that in, in a moment too, that because you have all these different uh, viewpoints and ideas that when they finally do reach a consensus on mm-hmm. something, because they're so different in what they actually want, the consensus they reach may not be quite as useful or business valuable as it should be because they're finally just reach a point where like, fine, this will do at least a little bit of what we all want and it'll get us out of this committee and moving on from there. Right. And then the last bullet point here is, and you kind of referenced this a little bit earlier too, I think um, the purchase likelihood drops from 81% to 55% with one additional decision maker. So when you noted the fact earlier, like if it was just you or just me making a decision, 81% of the time, I'm likely to purchase based on my own interests and what I want to get out of something. As soon as I bring someone else in, so as soon as I grab Cordy and say, hey, let's you and me work on this, that likelihood drops to half. 
just a little over half the time we're actually going to make a decision together. And then it gets even further down. So when you get to the point of six or more people, it's down to 31%. So only a third of the time that you are working with a group of six or more people are they likely to actually make a purchasing decision. That that sounds a little intimidating, and I can understand why some sales folks might look at these kind of yep. buyer groups and go, ugh, yep. I don't want to mess with this. Right. I know I'm wasting my time here. Yeah. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about That's how That's why salespeople are bald. They're ripping out their hair. I've, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> That's why I didn't stick with it for groups. too long. I got right? already losing yeah. enough. Yeah, I don't need to lose anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I usually work pretty well with examples. Mm-hmm. Someone could say something, and I go, okay, I understand. I hear what you said. And then they go, for example... And I go, okay, now I really understand. So I'm just, as, as I was listening to you talk, John, I was just thinking of an example of, or a group who might have good intentions of finding a solution to their problem that has awesome business value, but ends up settling for something that doesn't have the value it could have. Think about the cloud-based versus on-premise discussion, which happens at a lot of organizations on right. account of security, risk, which is something that IT would certainly be, you know, IT leadership would be worried about, legal might be worried about. So again, as an example, when it comes to marketing tools out there, there is lots of great cloud-based stuff um, that probably has functionality and benefit beyond, some of which might be available at an, at a, through an on-prem um, option. But the case would be made, you know, we don't want someone else owning our data. What if those servers fail? If we have it here, you know, we can control our own destiny kind of situation. So that's one way to think about that. You know, the, the types of competing priorities that could result in someone saying, okay, even though this would bring the maximum value, there are some risks there. We don't feel comfortable with mm-hmm. that. Maybe instead we go with something that gets us 75% of the way there, but makes us more comfortable from a, you know, compliance uh, you know, risk analysis situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Dean, what do you got? You got any insight here? Well, I was when you were talking and when you were talking too, John, I was thinking back to actually the whole premise of the challenger sales model, which is kind of how we kick this off. And I and the challenger customer is a whatever, a, a sidebar or a, an it's evolution. The next generation. It's the evolution. next generation. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, an evolution yeah. illusion to that. When you think the reason why the challenger sales model was so distinctive when it came out, because it 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 shook up the whole sales process in a way that it, it made sales folks rethink about how they approach their customers with truly challenging them. So it was like, an, it's, I don't want to call it an aggressive stance, but, but, but the whole part of the concept was that you would walk in and you would want to um, take the assumptions, the, maybe the preconceived ideas about the way a company was operating, for example, and and showing a different perspective and, mm-hmm. and forcing that different perspective view on the prospect so that they could see at the end of the road, you're trying to give them a solution. At the beginning of the road, they don't see why the solution is necessary. So it, it's it's part of that. And, I'm, and I was trying to weave that into the to the whole thought here as we think about now shifting it to the customer. I haven't I haven't read the book yet, but I was just trying to get myself back in that mind frame of really challenging Again, that's why the sales model really grabbed for a lot of sales reps because they understand that, you know what, if I'm going to go in and differentiate myself, I need to challenge 
what is being thought of right now as, as, as far as how their business is getting worked or, or, or done and things like that. So when you equate it to it, back to our examples, actually, John, I mean, it's, it's like when we were talking to um, some folks recently on the, on the podcast here, where we talk about solutions and, and the challenges that they have walking in and trying to talk about, uh, remember the one guy we were talking about, uh, how, you know, asset management and, and warehouses, it's all Excel sheets and, and some of right, it's paid, it's right. like 60% of that world is still in paper right. and it's like that's a challenge walking into so you've got to change the perception before you're even walking in the door and you have to have a plan to do that so anyway yep. it's all about mapping that out and so it makes sense now that we got to take that to the next iteration it's it's not just you know influencing the people that are going to be in it but also taking it to the next iteration right right well then so let's let's get into the next section here which is where these breakdowns occur in this whole situation. You've got this buying group and again we've already established they have all these different ideas, they have all these different perspectives, different needs. I've been in one of these groups before. My my last job before I came to Blue Star just in the maybe few months to a year or so before I left, we were working on a new CRM, on bringing in a CRM. Like we didn't really have an official one at the time. We were kind of using a hodgepodge of like sales tools that you could you could add a little notes and stuff here and there, but it wasn't super efficient. It was something that didn't really, it worked best, I think, for like for customer service and for some of the more um, generic sales reps who kind of, you know, were a catch all for a lot of stuff that came in. But then for folks like me, who are more on the account and business development side of wasn't things, very helpful. it wasn't super helpful. Right. No. So I had had previous experience with CRMs from other jobs before that. So I went into a group of people. And again, it was that whole wide group, everybody from customer service, finance, marketing, we all sat there and we work. I think we were working with Salesforce and we're sitting there just riffing back and forth all the time about everything we need. Mm-hmm. And and I remember just sometimes hearing those conversations. And I, I, there was one day, literally, the group dispersed and I kind of hung back and was just talking to the folks from Salesforce. I'm like, I'm so sorry you guys are, are, are here <laughs> and are doing this. You have to deal with this. Because yeah. I know I know what you're trying to do. I understand what you're trying to get to. And I, and I hear all these different conflicting opinions and I've got conflicting opinions too. And I know what I need out of it from my perspective, but there's five other people that need something different out of it from theirs as well. Mm-hmm. And it can't be easy. And, and, and I feel I felt bad for them, and I, I feel bad for anybody in sales that has to go and tackle one of these kind of groups. Mm-hmm. So that's where some of these dysfunctions can occur. Well, just wanted to say what's interesting, and with this new perspective from the book that I gained from what you just described is at least Salesforce had the ability to be involved at that step. True. Because what that's the, quite true. What the book says is that a lot of group purchasing decisions stall out. If you can think about, you know, the moment of us saying, hey, we need a new CRM to us purchasing and deploying it being zero to 100, usually at 37%, the book claims based on the survey data that those conversations stall out. And it isn't until 51% on average that companies reach out to a salesperson to even have that conversation. So if they're not reaching out to 51% and they're stalling out at 37%, Salesforce would never even get a chance right. to say, right. oh my gosh, we've got this crazy, diverse, somewhat dysfunctional group of people with this laundry list of features they're looking for. So in that instance, at least they were there. And, and, and I guess that kind of dovetails into the point that um, the book outlines basically three steps, which is uh, problem identification, which problems are worth solving which kinds of solutions are out there that could solve those problems? You know, do we need a CRM? Do we need a data analysis tool? You know, what what do we need, just generically speaking? And then thirdly is which one is the best fit from a brand standpoint, a supplier standpoint? Um, and, and what they've found is the supplier selection is the least problematic out of those three steps. That once a company can figure out, okay, 
we know that finance wants this, customer service needs this, marketing needs this, and they are able to prioritize those things effectively and kind of map them to the you know what's out there in the market when they can get to step two and go, okay, we do need a new CRM tool versus a data analysis tool or whatever the heck else they might be considering. Um, those are the most difficult ones. So as a salesperson, a sales organization, if you can be involved in helping guide them through that, you have a better chance of succeeding. Oh, um, 100%. Right? You know, Definitely. versus they think they've made all those decisions and then they just come to you. And at that point, they're just basically saying, do you fit our budget or not? So as part of the audience here, James, the, for this particular book is consumers? Are, are people in business today? I mean, so you just outlined, you know, so a, a business that's operating properly should properly identify this, the, yes. the issue. What are the solutions that are out there? And then pick which one's best. It's a great point. I mean, as someone who is involved in marketing and sales, right? like we all are, there's obvious takeaways for us on the helping our, our customers or software companies go in, sell and market more effectively. But as a company who also buys things, yeah. heck yeah, you look yeah. at this and you go, huh. Next time we have a big yeah, right? purchase to make, you know, related to digital tools or whatever it is, let's make sure we are doing those things effectively. Yeah. That we're yeah. saying, hey, guys, what problem are we solving as number one? A, maybe there's a 1B as well, mm -hmm. but instead of just saying, you know, we've got 5.4 people and they all think that they have these, you know, competing similar priority requests. Yeah, I, I absolutely think well, that takeaways. Because it's interesting, as I was putting my sales hat on, as you were talking about those three areas... I, I cringed. So if I'm in if I'm in the sales process with a company, to your point, if I'm in the first stage where they're identifying the problem, I'm like, yeehaw. You know, I know it's gonna be a long sale. So if I my quota is this month, I'm not gonna this is not for this month, but I love being early in on the conversation because now I can influence that. If I come in when they're they're in the selecting which is the best category. Dude, it's like, I'm not going to put a lot, this is just my sales hat on. I'm not going to put a lot of time towards that because I realize I'm just, I'm just one that they're evaluating. They probably, had a they make, or I got to really sharpen my pencil and come at it hard because somebody has probably already helped them develop the solution to this point And I got to differentiate myself big time. So anyway, yep. I think identifying those three areas, I love it because that is reality. That, that is how people buy today. Yep. You got this committee, right? You got this buying group. They're directed to do something. They're identifying the problem. They're figuring out the solutions, and then they're going to decide on which one's well, best. And if yep. you think about it, even on the personal level, we all do the same thing. Like, I'm someone who right. loves to do a lot of my research and understand, like, what I'm getting into before I get anywhere close to making that purchasing decision, whether it's a new car or just something as simple as, you know, I don't know, just some random product I need around the house that I haven't bought before and don't You're know not going to walk into a dealership with no knowledge. Exactly. Right? And just let someone sway you down yeah, the path exactly. and go, hey, okay, maybe I'll buy this car. And I think that's and that's and I feel like that's something that probably this whole challenger model and this idea of, of how to change the way we think about sales and marketing mm -hmm. is really making an impact is understanding look, we as consumers, whether an individual or a whole group of us have more access to information than we've ever had before. And we mm -hmm. always will now. That's just the world we live in. Anybody can get on Google and look up dozens of articles and pieces of information and you know tips and tricks and recommendations for how to do this or what to buy there. So that by the time, again, by the time you as a supplier, as someone who's trying to sell to them gets involved, it's quite likely they already have a bunch of preconceived notions and ideas of what they want. And it, either, either you're just going to have to get into the flow and go along with that, or you're going to have to try to figure out some way to reinvent the wheel. And to your point, to the point of this book, 
the earlier you get in, the less likely you have to try to fight against those preconceived notions. You're yep. more likely to be able to get a step in and say, hey, I understand you have some kind of a need here. You may have just started thinking about this, or maybe you haven't even thought about this yet at all. Let's have a conversation about that okay. and, and get in from the ground. I thought you made all your purchasing decisions based on TikTok influencers. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah. It plays totally. a part. <laughs> well, and if, anyone, if anyone's... You know me. Right. If anyone's tracking with us on this conversation, especially people in sales, they're going, yeah, we get it. We want to get in sooner. How right. the heck do you get in sooner? Yeah, right, right, right. right. Which, as I'm reading this, as a marketing guy, mm-hmm. honestly, um, and I don't... I don't you know, I wasn't biased to read this book. I didn't come in with a bias, but it was validating in a lot of ways to some of the marketing approaches that we take as mm-hmm. an organization yep. on mm-hmm. behalf of our customers even. Yep. And I know that this is probably going to be a part two of this small right. series to talk a little bit about how that aligns. But, you know, just to address it while people are going, God, don't leave me cliffhanging here. That's why. <laughs> and, and, I'll, and I'll tie it into, I guess, a bigger point, which is the idea of category before brand. And that sounds like marketing speak, which it is. Right. And I heard, heard people say it 50 times before I really said, what the hell are they saying here? What do they mean by this? And I'll, I'll use the car analogy that I think I was the one that brought up. You don't walk into a dealership going, I don't know what kind of car I want. Right. You've already convinced yourself if you want a minivan right. or an SUV or a pickup truck or a sedan in likelihood. And then right. it's just a matter of, you probably even, I mean, if I think about that 57% number, meaning I don't reach out to sales 57%, mm-hmm. again, that's B2B solution selling. Gosh, I'm at like 97% when I walk into a car dealership. Yep. You know what I yep. mean? So in the context of, a, of cars, of automobiles, how do they get in earlier? How do they go and prioritize category over brand? They would be creating advertising content. Let's just say content. Because when I think content now, when someone says content, I think ebooks because that's what we do. Right, right. But that could be videos. That could mm-hmm. be you know industry reports or whatever to say, hey, you know, to sell me on. So what I mean when I say category before brand is sell me on why as a, um, you know, a dad of three boys, a family of five, I should be thinking minivan versus SUV or minivan versus, you know, pickup truck or right, whatever. Right. Sell me on that first. Convince me of that. And then you'll have the opportunity. If you're the one providing me with this information and educating me along the way, the idea goes that now you're going to have the at bat because you got me to your website. You were retargeting me. You got me to maybe download something or give you my phone number. Or eventually, when I am ready to talk to sales, once you've educated me properly, I'm going to reach out. And if you're the one, again, not that you can control necessarily that whole journey. It's not linear in that way. Meaning when we're doing research to buy a new camera, I might go and watch some YouTube videos from one place, go to Best Buy and read specs, go to Amazon or or what have you. But yeah, if you're doing your job properly and promoting the brand, you will give yourself an opportunity to get that. uh, You know, when someone is ready to reach out to sales, come to the dealership, set up an appointment, you are, you know, you get an at-bat. Yep, definitely. And And to kind of equate it back to our industry a little bit, because again, you know, and I think about the whole challenger model, and I'll read this sentence, coming out of the challenger sales model, challengers intentionally dis- dispute their customer's way of thinking, forcing them to contemplate new perspectives, right? So that's, that's, that's the mindset of the challenger sales model. But I think connecting the dots here, you know, again, I'll just harken back to some of the conversations we've had recently on this podcast, where it's, you got barriers when you walk into a customer that is a manufacturer of a bowl, (laughs) and and they do all of their asset tracking on paper. So what is it? How are you going to get into that mode of discussing the solution that you have, which is going to make their whole world better? you got to challenge the way that they're thinking about it, and and that's part of how you get in early, I guess. And so this is them to change, right? right? It's not easy. No, (laughs) it's not. But marketing plays a role, obviously, in part of that conversation. 
of convincing people this buying group that you got to get in front of um, that there that there is that. Now I, I'm I'm really curious about. You're um, early on in the podcast, you were talking about how, you know, you want to be careful about that. You don't want to arm too many of these, I guess, influencers with information. Are we going to dig into that in this podcast or is that yeah, another no, one? Let's, I mean, we could go into that right now. And, and, and it was so counterintuitive to me. Who, right. Because I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you know, I get it. I totally get it that you're arming people with stuff and they're going to dig in on functionality. And well, if it doesn't have this, you right. know, then then screw it. It doesn't have my vote. And it's like. Okay, yeah, I see that, but we 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 need to chew on that a little bit because, um, you know, again, I th- I think you're right. Most salespeople that are listening to this say, I got, I understand. I got to get in early. I know there's going to be at least six people in on the conversation on the so, so so what? So you know, yeah, and and basically the case that's made is instead of trying to convince every one of those people individually by tailoring your message to each one of them, which they claim is more likely to result in a lower quality deal if it results in a deal. Okay. They're basically saying, you know, you're going to want to tailor your message in once you find your mobilizer. And this is a part of the book I haven't gotten into, meaning I've given it some thought, which mm-hmm. I think is fun to do. You know, they kind of plant the seed and say, okay, what you're looking for is uh, a profile of a go-getter. Mm-hmm. And they break down what that means or a teacher or a skeptic. Those are the three gotcha. that the highest performing sales rep go, go after. And then the other three are, I think I have it in my notes, the friend, uh-huh. which is the person who's willing to answer emails, willing to pick up phones, um, but aren't nece- aren't typically that mobilizer. They're mm-hmm. typically the person that you know wants to give the impression, maybe to outside people, hey, you know, I'm open. I, I might be able to help you out here. And in reality, they often can't. Mm-hmm. The guide is the person who's more often going to bring you to the other person. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm not the guy or, or the woman, but I know who is. Let mm-hmm. me connect you to him. And then the person who's the, you know, the go-getter or the skeptic goes, no, <laughs> I'll, I'll find it on my own. You know, leave me out of this. Right. Uh, and then the climber, which talks more about um, basically someone who is interested in bringing in a solution or being an usher of change mm-hmm. if it personally benefits them, if it's going to reflect and make them look good. Uh, Versus, right. you know, someone that's the go-getter basically just says, look, this is going to help us. I don't I don't care if I get the credit or if Dean gets the credit. Right. If this is going to make us more effective, let's go do it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the go-getter or even the teacher are very open to having that conversation. So a mobilizer could be any of those or a mobilizer, a mobilizer is usually the go-getter? is usually the go-getter, the teacher, or the skeptic. Got it. So the question I started asking myself is, okay, so if I'm in a sales role, let's just say we're doing what we do through Appware Solutions. For those of you listening that aren't familiar, Appware is our end-user-focused marketing program where we help Blue Star customers, whether it be value-added resellers, you know, software companies, solution providers, go and generate new leads. And we do that through content marketing. Um, I think about a typical campaign where we might have 150, 200 downloads of an ebook. And I start to think to myself, okay, now if I'm if I'm giving our partners, sales organizations, the advice that, hey, we've got some new insight. What you guys need to do is go through this list and find your mobilizer. How would I do that? Mm. Right. And it, it led me to another thought. I know I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole a little bit here, but it's an interesting one um, where I've just had this. It's not a great thought, but I just think it's reality that nothing Nothing is a strong word. A lot of things that are effective aren't easily scalable. Meaning, how do I go find that person? It's probably not going to be real easy. You know, but but I started thinking, I'm like, okay, so if I had a list of people who have already given me their information in exchange for a piece of content, an ebook, I have their email address, their phone number, their job, their company, I can find them, most of them, reasonably well on LinkedIn or, or somewhere online. And I can start to maybe look for signs. 
you know, do they share a lot of professional type information? Who knows? But that's where my head is at mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. how can I start to think about identifying those people? What are some other characteristics that your teacher might have? Again, maybe sharing a lot of professional mm-hmm. information online versus your go-getter or even your skeptic. Your skeptic might be someone who doesn't share a lot. You know, they're head down working and they're not busy on social media. Very and so often. take us to the next step real quick. So you want to get the mobilizer on your side, right? Yes. Is, oh, that the, yes. is that the whole idea here? And so instead of me as the sales organization having to convince the 5.4, I'm going to really get in ah. with maybe a couple. Maybe uh-huh. it's the go-getter and the skeptic or, yeah, or right. what have you, and let them go make the case. Got I'm going to really say to you, hey, help me understand. Now that I've got your attention and you're interested in changing, which is a characteristic of a go-getter and a teacher, um, help me understand. And, and it's the salesperson's job to, and I thought this was so good because I've been on so many of these calls with salespeople mm-hmm. where they go, hey, our tool is great. It does X, Y, and Z. And I go, I get it, but X and Y, that doesn't really apply to my context. Mm -hmm. Z might, but let me explain to you, Mm because I'm that guy. Let me explain to you and give you a bunch of information about how Blue Star operates, our industry, our different challenges. And they, a lot of times they got this confused look on their face and they go, oh gosh, this customer isn't anything like our typical customer. (laughs) But the good salespeople can then, and this is what I read in the book, rebuild their value in the context of your business challenge and say, okay, now that I understand, James, what you do and what Blue Star is about, here is how I would think about using this tool. Yeah. And sometimes I go, eh, not convinced. And other right. times I go, you're right. Okay. Now, you know, now we're getting there. And yeah. then let me go and convince the other people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's in essence what it is, you know, selling to the hidden influencer who can multiply your results. So not trying to customize. Because the other thing is customizing, personalizing a content. Think about John, if every ebook we created, oh my lord, we had to create a different version. Yeah, or one for the right. account, or one right. for operations, right. yes. one for it's or a, just oh my different lord. assets Nightmare. entirely. Yeah. yeah, money, time, and then you're like, gosh, how much are we spending to acquire you know one person mm-hmm. versus giving a lot of thought to you know. Right. Who is that one or two people within the company we should be trying to reach? Well, and, the, and or how do you react to the people that that anyway? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, the hard part of that too is also finding that balance of somewhere in between because we've we've done enough of these campaigns where sometimes we work with a customer who says, "Well, this works for everybody and everything." So just go go sell it to everybody. Like we'll ask, you know, we, we always ask in that process of figuring out what our campaign is going to be about. You know, we understand like, hey, you as the the person providing the solution should know your solution and your customer and this industry better than we're ever going to, most likely. Now, granted, we've learned a lot of stuff over time from just doing enough of these that we know what does and doesn't work sometimes. But we still rely on them to start off and give us a little bit of that info. And sometimes that info comes back where we'll say, like, hey, looking at all these LinkedIn-type profiles and job descriptions and industries, what are you you targeting? What are you going after? And you'll always see those ones every now and then where we'll check off basically every box, like – this is this solution works for everybody in every yeah. industry. Like anyone with four walls can right, use it. Yeah, and then basically we have to say, okay, that's great, but how this works is to narrow that down a little bit. And again, you don't want to get too far narrowed down. If you get too narrowed down, you get too specific, and you're just going after a couple of people who may or may not be able to do something about this and have a have a stake. But you have to at least get it narrowed down enough where you're saying, all right, well then instead of saying every industry can use this asset management resource, sure, everybody has a need for that. Instead, let's say it's all about public sector. Let's say it's all about uh, city commissioners 
guide to asset management. And suddenly you're you're having a much more narrow conversation that's about a very specific focus. Yep. And it doesn't have to be just somebody whose title is commissioner. It can still be somebody in that office or in that area in various departments that you know are related to that. And suddenly somehow, though, at that point, you've condensed your message. You're reaching out to specific people who get this. And ideally, that, that marketing, and again, we'll get into this a little bit more in our part two segment of this whole conversation, you're you're defining that message a little bit better where they see it and go, okay, this is about me and my problems. And they're talking about stuff that I recognize and understand in my business, in my industry. Yeah. And the other point that you made too mm-hmm. earlier when we were talking about this idea of if you're a salesperson thinking like, well, this all sounds good, but where do I start? You know, one of the points that they noted out is this idea of this is what you're doing wrong and understanding that, hey, if if, if you if you know where to point yourself and you know where there's an issue or a problem. And the bigger part of this, and this is, I think, a challenge for a lot of people in sales, it was part of the reason I wasn't fond of being in sales and, and ended up getting out of it is because I was not the kind of person who was going to go spend a bunch of time talking to a whole bunch of people to start digging in. But if you want to be an above-average salesperson, I think the best salespeople are the ones that do go approach a company and say, hey, I'm going to talk to you, 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 all these people, and start sorting them and figuring out, okay, this person's the skeptic, this person's the go-getter, this person's the teacher. If you're spending time with all these people and talking to all of them and understanding their perspective about this particular problem, you should start identifying who all those people are, and it'll eventually make it easier to start segmenting them and figuring out what your next step is. But if you're not doing that, if you're not having those conversations up front, if you're not spending that time, if you just think, well, usually it's a purchasing person, so I'm just going to go find the purchasing person at this company and call them. And if they turn me down, then fine, I'll move on to the next one. Right. You might have just, just thrown an opportunity out the window because you just didn't happen to talk to the right person at that yeah, company. that purchasing person at that company is a guide or a friend or right. whatever, not necessarily the right person. Yeah, you know, this might sound egotistical, and I don't mean it to because I know a lot of people get these kind of messages. I get so many emails from salespeople that as I'm reading this book, I'm like, Am I giving off like teacher vibes or something here? Like what is it about people? Because again, I kind of am. I know that about myself that when if someone can get my attention and say something that makes me go interesting. And actually, I don't want to show my hand on my what's tech connecting with me, but this company did this to me recently. And that's why I'm going to bring them up. Um, when someone can get my attention, I'm very much that one that will go and fight for them before they even know that I'm doing it. You know what I mean? Before mm-hmm. I even responded to them, they got my attention. They said something that um, – rung true to me where I went, oh God, that is an issue we have, you know, attribution. We always hear right, people talking right, about attribution right, right. or whatever it is. And then I go and do my research. I watch the videos and then I start making a case. And then a lot of times, and I've given this thought even before I started reading this book, a lot of times when I reach out to a salesperson, we have a conversation, I think to myself, I'm like, this must be like a great day for them. Cause I'm like, Hey, I don't, you don't need to go through the whole song and dance right. with me. I'm more or less sold. Right. I just need to know if the price fits and, you know, can I invite a bunch of people in here? You know, what's the user situation or, or whatever? Yeah. But I've already basically sold myself based on the information that's out there. Yeah. Um, so, Pe- yeah. People like you are the people that salespeople, uh, like, hope and dream they can get a hold of. And that's what I'm truly wondering. <laughs> and maybe that's what's going to be revealed is, what is it? Are there signs out there? Are there ways to kind of sniff right, these people right, out? Right. And like I said, maybe people find me on LinkedIn and go, oh, yeah. I can tell this is my guy because, look, he's oversharing and all this good stuff. If I can get his attention, he's going to go and do my bidding for yep. me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'll turn that off if I do find out that that's what's going on. It's just <laughs> it's what it is. I'll just keep ignoring emails until they really do a nice job. That's right. Well, that to me feels like a nice place to kind of stop this main conversation because I feel like we're putting a little bit of a cliffhanger and a to be continued on to where we're going to do go next. Mm-hmm. Uh, so before but before we shift over to our recurring segments and kind of wrap this up a little bit for our VARs and give a takeaway, as always – 
Uh, I have to thank our founding members, Elo, Epson, Honeywell, and Zebra. We thank you so much for supporting our podcast. And hey, if you as the listener want to support this podcast, uh, first of all, share it. If you if you liked an episode, you like this episode, share it with a colleague. We always put up some cool little snippets of videos on LinkedIn and on our Twitter feed. Uh, share those with somebody, recommend it, they listen to us, hit the subscribe button, give us a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review on YouTube, or as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter at TechConnectPod and on email, TechConnect at BlueStarInc.com. All right, so let's let's kind of wrap this up, and I feel like this value to the VAR is one where we really do need to kind of package what we've talked about together. We always say that's the point of this segment is let's take this conversation we've had mm-hmm. and kind of take some takeaways from mm-hmm. it for, for our VAR audience. So I'm thinking about, you know, I, I think the two biggest things that kind of stood out to me and I, and I put it in the notes here that we've, we've talked about so far is this idea of focusing on helping buyers to align to the problems that, 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 that needs to be solved. And again, it's that idea of you, you do probably need to try to get in as early as you can and, you know, later we'll talk to you a little bit more about how that works. But let's assume that you have, you know, you found a way to get in a little bit early or you've got this close, strong connection with a customer or a buying group or a company that you want to touch upon. And you know that there's something going on there that you feel like you could help out and improve. Get in there early, figure out what those problems are, understand how you align with them. And then the other part, again, is seek out those mobilizers. Know who those people are. Hopefully you've had enough of those conversations. If you haven't, start having them and figure out what buckets you're dropping everybody into. Who's this person? Who's that person? Who's this person? Which of those people do you want to connect with? Um, what other thoughts do you have and takeaways from what we've talked about for our VARs? I thought that was really well said. Um, you know, like you said, aligning people around what solution they should be solving and in creating marketing content information around right. that point. Um, that's, yeah, that's the major takeaway. And like you said, getting in earlier. Yeah, I, and I, I agree with that. You know, I, I hearken back to my old sales days, if I could go back there. And it is it is absolutely a truism that you want to get, you want to delineate alignment on what the focus, what the problem is, right? right you you right. need people to get consensus of that. Look, if you don't believe that solution selling in, in the modern era is is a multifaceted, was it buying group is, mm-hmm. is the word that we're using here, is, is a buying group, you're wrong. It is. It doesn't <laughs> matter. Uh, unless you're selling like, a $10 item that doesn't have right, a lot right. of... Which, a pen. If you're selling a box of, of our, pens. None of our resellers are, right? right? Every single sale, I think the average sale for our resellers is like $15,000 and up. So yeah, you're going to have multiple people on, on a sale like that involved in it. You got to understand that. But if you can bring alignment and focus in on what the problem is, when I was in sales, if I was starting to get those heads nodding that everybody was in agreement on that, especially if I was in early on the uh, in on the mm-hmm. problem solution, I, I knew I, my chances of winning the sale were much higher uh, to to that degree. I love I by the way, I love the statistics that we talked about here and the, how the likelihood kind of drops off. So that's so true. Uh, you know, you just reminded me of one thing I meant to mention earlier, which is just something I've noticed in my own experience that when you're dealing with a good salesperson, and I always think about HubSpot because mm-hmm. I just felt like the salesperson we dealt with there was just sharp. They mm-hmm. were just well trained salespeople. They established, they attempt to establish things like who else, how many stakeholders are at play here? How many people am I dealing with here? Is this a, is this a you decision or is this a we decision? And it's most often as we, a we decision. Um, how soon are we talking about moving here? Is this an, in a year or is this right. in two or three months? I think those are, you know, assuming you get the right person on the hook that's willing to share, and 
never hurts to ask. I, I wanted to call that out, that if you can establish, because not to say that it's never going to be a smaller group. You know, the three of us have certainly made decisions about marketing tools before, and there's been other ones where there was probably seven or eight people. I mean, shoot. I was just thought in my head as you were speaking, Dean, our holiday card is a two or three person decision every year. You <laughs> right? know what I mean? Yeah, like I there are very few single person decisions. That's not to say that there aren't sometimes smaller groups. And yeah. I think that's, it's nice to know. But you yeah. know, in this case, knowledge is power. I mean, you know, I think our resellers have to understand that, what the playing field is when you're walking in. I think that what, what I've heard today is confirmation of the fact that you do need to get some alignment uh, as it relates to the customer if you're trying to get into that solution sales m mode. Um, I, I, I'm now connecting the dots in my head that, look, if I arm the accountant with this message and I arm the operations guy or girl with a different message, first off, I need to recognize the fact that they could use that to pit themselves. So that that's an eye-opener to me. But and at the end of the road, what I would try to do is condense whatever they're all talking about, focusing in on the problem and, and how you're, you're going to solve that. If you can get a consensus across those 5.4 people that are going to be in the yeah. buying mode, that's, that, that's kind of what you're going for here, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so I guess we'll get into how marketing, so they got to stay tuned to how we can get marketing <laughs> involved in that and some selling, you know, and people to help out with those part with that, at least getting into that part of the process. That's right. And that is our that is our stay tuned to be continued. Come back for more plug there. Uh, we're going to give Courtney a chance to actually finish reading this book um, <laughs> uh, or at least at least get a good chunk further where you can, you know, bring back some more information. I, but again, to your point, I think we kind of feel like we know where this is going. And the good news is, is it goes in a direction that is very much within our own wheelhouse and what we feel like we have done successfully and correctly on, on the part of marketing. Uh, we might learn some new things, and if so, we'll be happy to share those with you. But, you know, we, I, we've had some conversations about this marketing practices in the past. We did a couple episodes last year about that. I think it'll be nice to revisit this in the context of this and hopefully for our listeners to realize, like, hey, this isn't just some marketing dudes geeking out about all things marketing that may, may or may not be relevant to sales. But it's going to be us talking about, hey, we understand how the sales process works, and we're going to tell you – we're going to talk to you about how – the marketing aspect of things can make that even easier and faster and better for you to, to actually get in there and win some business. It's crystallized in my mind a little bit what marketing's goal is versus what sales goal is when right. it comes to content creation. Content's not going to sell your product. It's going to help align on what's so what problem to solve right. and what kind of solution could do it. Sales still needs to sell the product yep. ultimately, yep. right? And that, you know, I, and I think that's going to be a good key point for us in our next episode too, is this, the idea that we on the marketing side, there's a reason why we do what we do, but there's also a reason why we're not salespeople. 100%. And we both have different jobs to do that, that do meet in the middle, but it's an understanding. Both of us have to understand what the other has, has to accomplish and what it has tried to do before we can do our jobs correctly. And talk about alignment. You have to have alignment with, yeah. between sales and marketing in order to execute properly. Or at exactly. least it's, it's, it's not as efficient as it could be. Right. Which is everybody's goal, right? We want to be <laughs> exactly. as efficient as we possibly can along the way. Yep. So stay tuned for that. Come back. Uh, we will have another episode in the future uh, kind of following up on this conversation and wrapping things up a little bit. Hopefully you got some good takeaways out of this one. All right. In the meantime, uh, let's finish up with our favorite segment, What's Tech? Connecting with you. This is, of course, where we go around the horn, talk about a piece of technology, innovation, something happening in the world of science and tech that has our attention. James, I'll start with you. You kind of hinted at it earlier. What's tech connecting with you right now? Yeah. So 
um, I think it was actually an ad on a podcast, believe it or not, which was one of those moments where when I realized that this ad was effective on me, I was like, podcast advertising, huh? <laughs> Interesting. Hey, and- I, I started doing HelloFresh and Blue Apron and all that stuff because of podcast advertising. Truly, I've been affected by podcast advertising quite a bit. It's mm-hmm. just, and we've heard mar- digital marketers talk about this. It's so difficult to attribute Yes, a lead, right. a right, sale right, to right. it. But so what? If it works, it works, right? right? right. Um, anyhow, there's a tool called Oribi. And when it was spoken, because I heard it on a podcast, I wrote it down and then I could not find it because I was trying <laughs> to spell it all the wrong ways. So it's like Orbit, O-R-I-B-I, Oribi. So what it is, um, and another thing I've been kind of thinking a lot about and learning about is what they refer to as product-led marketing. Mm. So this is a product mm-hmm. which employs a product-led marketing strategy, which means... Get someone to sign up for a free trial. Mm -hmm. Let the product sell itself. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a Google Analytics killer. It's kind of their messaging. You know, hey, it actually kind of makes me laugh, the ad, which is like, hey, Google Analytics has been around for like 20 years, and we're still using it. And I was like... (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, it just, it, that wasn't that effective. But then I'm like, okay, keep going. Oribi is an analytics tool for websites. The difference is it can go, well, I won't get into too many of the weeds. You can ask it questions. Once it's live on your website, you can say, and this is probably more applicable to our partners who might have a, you know, a software tool than it probably would be for Blue Star, but it's really neat. Um, instead of just going, hey, here's all the data, which is what Google Analytics does, mm-hmm. figure out what it means, you can ask Oribi questions. Mm. Are people that visit my pricing page more likely to schedule a demo or to start a free trial or whatnot? So you can pin what they call events, which could be form fills, button clicks, video views, whatever, um, and then kind of under it, it just gives you really great context. It's basically doing the ana- analysis for you, which is pretty right. neat. I did plug it into Blue Star Inc. the other uh-huh, day because uh-huh, uh-huh. it was free and I went in there and uh, it's been pretty cool just to see how they do their marketing piece where I plugged it in and then I was like, okay, I'll come back in a couple days and see what's what. And then I forgot about it and I got an email from them and the subject line was, what went wrong or what happened or something? <laughs> I was like, oh no, what happened? And I clicked it and they're like, you put the code on your website and you never came back. I'm like, shoot, I didn't ever come back. And I went and logged in and started playing nice. around with it. And it's just super intuitive. It's really cool. I'll, I'll close this up and also wrap it into another point I made earlier, which was I'm sitting there thinking because I'm that teacher apparently where I'm like, this tool is really neat. I don't know that we need it, though. Mm. I don't know what questions right. I would ask it right, in a Blue right, Star context. Right. I know what our partners would ask. I know what some of our software partners would do with it. I don't know what I would do with it. Right. So it's that, you know, breaking down your if, – if I was the salesperson in this instance, it would be, okay, if I can get James on the phone, what I need to do is figure out what the heck does Blue Star do, mm. what, what types of actions are important to you, and then to rebuild the value of Oribi in the context of what Blue Star does. Nice. I've been trying to do that for them, and I don't know what the answer is. So we probably <laughs> – <laughs> don't need it. You guys listen and check out Aribi. I'm an unpaid shill for them, apparently, along with this book. Um, but it's it's pretty cool. So it sounds yeah. like AI for websites, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the yeah. AI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lesson in there also. If you are providing ads for a podcast um, and you provide any kind of scripting or whatever, make sure that if your product doesn't isn't easily spelled. Provide a spelling because I hear that as right? I listen to podcasts yes. and I will hear ads where they were actually spell out like a yeah. URL or something. Right, super smart. Well, we kind of did it ourselves when we started yeah. off too. You know, the Tech Connect T E C O N and right, E C T. You know, like it's important. It, it is because people are are apt to spell something the way they think it's going to sound. So if and, and and granted, you know, 
I always put notes in the show notes. Like every time we do these tech connecting segments, I always put in the show notes what we tech connected. I'll put a link if I can in there for it. But you can't assume someone's looking at this stuff. You know, if people are listening to podcasts while they're driving or running or whatever, they're not taking the time to look at their phone or look at notes. So make sure you're spelling this stuff out. So there's I'm my I'm a tip sucker there. for those kind of tips, man. Because that's the small <laughs> detail yep. stuff that's so every time I hear the ad now, I think about it. I'm like, oh, it sounds like he's saying Aribi. Yep. Not Oribi. <laughs> you gotta need to really it out. pronounce that. Oh, he's a guy from Boston. He's got a funny accent. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dean, what's tech connecting with you this week? Uh, when I say 3D printing, what do you think of? Do you think, uh, you know, you thinking like you can print a little widget yeah, or something little, like little that? Yeah, little gadgets here you know, and there. Little or chicken nuggets. Here. Didn't we have a chicken nugget we 3D did. printing once? Yeah, yeah, well, that was the food 3D. Right, right, right. 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 How about a house? I have heard about 3D this. printing of a house? Okay, so apparently that's been around a little bit, but right. they're all one-offs. But here's the article I was reading. I was like, what? Now, of course, in Southern California, they're going to have the first U.S. community of 3D printed homes. Yep. So a whole yep. subdivision of 3D printed homes it that, isn't, that it, you can buy if you'd like. Is the idea of this, wasn't it for the, like, for the unhoused? Like, is it, is, no, is no. Developed communities there? Oh, no. Not, no. Okay, no. And, and let me give you the second point expensive. of why this isn't. So what do you think? So it's a, it's a 3D printed home community in Southern California each home will span 1,400 square feet, 1,450 square feet, uh-huh. right? So that's how many square feet that uh-huh. you, you get out of a typical one. Um, how much does that go for, do you think, in oh, Southern God. California? Probably guess. a couple million or something. Well, not that bad. Okay. 500,000. Ooh, really close. Oh, really? I was going to definitely go higher than that. Okay. You just tell well, 595,000. <laughs> it's still. So 600 grand for a 3D printed house. <laughs> With Very three bedrooms crazy. in Southern California. It's here. That's that's the part of it that I was like, what? So explain How this to look? me. Are we 3D printing like the f- like components to build I th- together? I think so, yes. Because even so. It's not like built on site well, where like. Well, yeah. It's not like there's a giant 3D printer that's <laughs> well, bigger than know. a house. You know? Right, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, again, that's why I kind of started off. My perspective of a 3D printer is like this little thing right. that you can like fit on your desk. It has to make the entire thing is almost kind of what you think. Like, yeah. And you know, if or, I wanna... at least, or at least uh, at least the individual components. But man, that's gonna be a lot of individual components. This house needs to be at least three times the size. Right. So then I'm with you. Okay. So if it's gonna be assembled like a Lego, and why am I paying this much money for a Lego house? You know, I mean, you know, that's where you start wondering, like, how much does it cost to get a 3D printer and this and the plans for this? You know, oh, that's only three hundred thousand. Well, then shit, I'll do this myself. (laughs) Oh, 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 and by the way, that's the starting price is five ninety five, five hundred ninety five. That's for the base three bedroom model. You can go up to nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a two home configuration. Which I guess remember when we were starting to talk about tiny homes? You know, a couple of years. I still love tiny homes. I'm someday I'm getting a tiny home somewhere. I don't. I'm gonna get a plot of land. (laughs) I don't know where. I guess it has to be on a river since my last name is river man but anyway <laughs> i'm gonna get a tiny home and i'm gonna put it on somewhere but not if they're nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars for right, a 3d right. house come on i gotta right. see these things because i'll tell you what i've watched a decent number of those home you know house hunter right, type shows right, yep. right. that yep. is not real expensive for southern california no, I mean, it's not. It's it's expensive normal, for here, but yeah, whatever. Sixteen hundred square foot house is like one point two, one point four million. Right. I was sure you were going to tell me it was one point six or something. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah, I it looks like a, a, when you see the artist illustration of what it's going to look like. Uh, I don't know. It kind of looks like glorified truck containers. <laughs> 
Okay. White adobes, if you will, yeah. with white fences around. I mean, there's your picture of it. I mean, it's not. Oh, it's I nothing. See. It's nothing glorious, no. uh, if you will. But that's anyway, hey, John, what's tech? Yeah, it sounds to me like almost one of those things. that's just people are going to pay for the novelty of it more than anything. Okay. Yeah. Probably. Well, anyway, yeah. if you are dying to get into a community of 3D printed I'm houses, <laughs> it's available for you now. Right. What's tech connecting with you? Good to know. Well, what's tech? Actually, this week, if this is what is not. Tech connected oh, with me. Oh, I have a I have a tech beef. Okay. This week. Oh, I like it. And this would be our first tech beef, wouldn't it? Uh, I think so. Like we had we had an episode where we talked about something that didn't tech connect with us, like in the world of technology. I yeah. think. But uh, okay, so baseball season started back up, and you guys yep. are familiar with this. I've ranted about this already with both of you. Baseball season is back. I'm a big Reds fan. I love yep. to be able to watch my Reds. Well, in most major markets. Watching your local baseball team is on a select group of channels. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, those channels have been owned by the like by Fox. Fox owned these Fox Regional Sports Networks. Yeah. Fox Sports, where, right, right? And it's not just for baseball. You know, basketball, hockey, yeah. and everything too. Like our local one for Ohio is you know the station also for the Cleveland Cavaliers, for the Blue Jackets. Yep. You know, there's several Ohio teams that are that that you know have the primarily most of their games are going to be available on that channel. Well, Sinclair, the Sinclair Broadcasting Group, which I have all kinds of problems with on many different <laughs> levels that we won't get into, purchased all of those regional sports networks from Fox over the last couple of years or so. And I think it was in part due, I think it might have been in part due to Disney buying Fox, buying 20th Century Fox, hmm. and they had to kind of shed some of their different oh, really? properties okay. in right. order to prevent, I guess, monopoly stuff from oh, them, potentially. Right. Yeah. I, th- I think that's the story, at least. So yeah. Fox Sports Ohio has, you know, it was basically bought by Sinclair. Sinclair started this whole little war with streaming services mm-hmm. where they basically started saying, hey, in order to have our content, our sports content, you need to pay some more money to us. Well, it happened last year, just before the season was supposed to start originally, and kind of last minute in the last few couple of weeks of spring training, and also before the pandemic then shut everything down, an agreement was made that, yes, you know, this will still happen in like YouTube TV and Hulu Live, the streaming services that carry like the live, like local channels and kind of mm-hmm. like cable style networks without having to have cable, mm-hmm. were able to pick it up. So that so it's, it was saved last year. Well, the same problem happened at the end of last year again. And once again, those two services had to drop it, all those Sinclair net- networks and those regional sports networks, because they couldn't, they didn't want to pay the prices. Right. So coming into this season now, it was once again a problem, except this time no agreement was made. So coming into this season, as I'm ready to watch Sorry, the Reds, John. Yeah, yes. suddenly I can't watch them on wah, YouTube TV, wah. which is my streaming service of choice. Mm-hmm. I, and I couldn't even switch over to Hulu to watch it there. Mm-hmm. My only option, I basically had two options, go back to cable, mm-hmm. or there's one other random streaming service that I honestly didn't even know much about, AT&T TV. <laughs> not really my favorite that. service. It's, <laughs> it's not as user-friendly as YouTube. I'm not a big fan of it. It's more, more expensive also. But I, I bit the bullet. I signed oh, yeah? up for it. I paused my YouTube TV for six months through the season. I signed up for this one just so I can watch my Reds games again. But I'm very frustrated by this I, whole situation. I would like to add on to your tech beef. I agree. And in, in what I see clearly coming is the pendulum swinging way over. Yep. Because how do how am I going to get content that I want to watch? Well, I'm going to have to subscribe to one of... I mean, I, I think I subscribe to, let's see, YouTube, Netflix, Hulu. Mm-hmm. I think Disney... I'm on like four or five yeah. streaming services right now. Same well, here. that pendulum just began. So, like, I can see myself in two years from now, I'm going to have 10 streaming services now yeah. that I got to subscribe whole, to. Our whole cord cutting idea, which was a brilliant, great it's idea. It's a great idea. Suddenly, you're, you end up buying it's all a these ball separate of yarn services. Now. That, yeah, it's just, <laughs> well, that and my other point here, too, is, is unfortunately, baseball is probably a 
I'm not going to call it a dying sport, but it is a sport that is on the decline and it has been for the last couple decades. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's been swamped out by NFL and NBA in, in, in the U.S. You mm-hmm. know, even, even hockey is growing at a better rate, I think. Than, Signed a contract uh, with ESPN for yeah, exactly. the future. And that's my point also. Like, this is one of those things where baseball themselves, I think, needs to get involved and actually push this narrative a little bit more. Mm-hmm. It, it, if, if they genuinely care about wanting their fans to be able to enjoy their games. I'm sorry, I get that they want us to go to games, but you know, I I'm not going to 100 and, or my 81 local games right. here. I'm just yeah. not you doing it. want to watch every game you can. Right. right. Yeah. yeah, but I will, but I will sit down and watch probably 150 of the 162 games a year. I I'm I'm that person that will watch I, at least part of, of most baseball of them. fundamentally doesn't understand how people consume video yeah. today. And the other which leagues is, too. They're sitting down with their laptop. I'd have it yep. streaming right up in the corner watching it doing some stuff other yeah, exactly. shopping on Amazon yeah, whatever. Exactly. And yeah. the other leagues do understand. Like the NFL yeah. recently signed a giant new package for like the next 15 years or something that includes like all your local networks, all of their streaming services. Mm-hmm. Amazon Prime mm-hmm. is going to have a bunch of games. Like they make their stuff very accessible. NBA's made their stuff accessible. Yep, right. Don't they stream some games on Twitter or something. I, yeah, I well, Facebook, that. I think, Anywhere. Twitter, YouTube yeah. has yeah. like games of the week. Like they they have understand that. Look, people watch content in a millions of different ways in a lot of different places. We should make sure that our content reaches them wherever they are. <laughs> I'm tech connecting something in my mind right now. One of our coworkers, who her and her husband are also big Reds fans. You guys, know, I'm not going to call yeah, her up. Right, 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 right. We've discussed this whole point too. Asked yes. me for a recommendation <laughs> on a VPN service the other day. Right, and she related yep, it to yep. watching the Reds. And yeah. I, now I understand a little bit more. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. because the, the other side of the things is the only other option like for streaming games is MLB.tv. Mm-hmm. They have their own streaming. But they block it out locally, but right? they block out local games. That's her angle. So unless you're <laughs> unless you're a fan of a of a of a of a team that's in a different state in a different region from where you are, right. you can't watch it unless yeah. you've got to run around in some way. Yeah. Like a VPN, but if your servers so. are in Denver and you're right. a Cincinnati Reds fan, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> got it. So this it's just a it's a cluster. It's frustrating. This is my, this is always my favorite time of year. I'm always excited to start watching Reds games yeah. again. And granted, I'm doing it, but I had to jump through hoops that I did not want or expect for this year. When so. the Reds are having a record breaking year. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, so that is what is not. Hey, I'm right with now. you on the tech beef. Get yeah. it together, MLB. Get it together, <laughs> sports networks. Get it together, streaming services. There you go. So, all right. Well, hey, it is time for us to unplug. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation. Again, keep an eye out in the future for a part two. We will be coming back around to this again. But uh, in the meantime, for Dean Reverman and James Cordy, I'm John Martin. And uh, thanks for watching. Until next time, stay connected. By now, we all know that purpose-built mobile devices are better than consumer, especially in healthcare. But if your customers insist on using them anyway, insist that they protect them with Code Reader 7000 Series healthcare-grade battery backup cases. Made of PVC-free Code Shield disinfectant-ready plastics and Dragon Tail shatterproof glass, CR7000 cases are ready to protect iPhones from harsh chemical disinfection and provide full enclosure from bacteria and viruses. Combine that with an easily swappable external battery that more than doubles the life of the phone, and you have the perfect solution to make comfortable consumer-grade devices ready for intense daily use. Fully enclosed means fully protected. To learn more, check out the link in the show notes or contact your Blue Star Code representative. Looking to provide customers with pre-configured, easy-to-use solutions? Look no further than ELO's InnoBox Solutions. Combining ELO's best-in-class interactive displays with cutting-edge software, Bluestar services, and all of the accessories, validation, and certification options you expect, InnoBox makes things easy. Choose from any of ELO's software-agnostic displays ranging from 7 to 65 inches and tell your rep what you and your customer needs to make your solution a success. 
To learn more and see some of Elo's in-a-box solutions for video conferencing, POS, wayfinding, and more, check out the link in the show notes or contact your Blue Star Elo representative. Healthcare budgets are tight, but quality technology is a must. Help your customers on both fronts with Zebra's TC21 and TC26 healthcare mobile computers, the ultimate cost-effective devices, providing all the features non-clinical healthcare workers need to communicate, document, and stay connected from anywhere on campus and beyond. Choose from Wi-Fi only or cellular options with Zebra's leading voice solutions and mobility DNA tools to deploy healthcare-ready 5-inch display devices with easily removed batteries and a wide selection of potential accessories. To learn more, find plenty of helpful sales tools and a video overview, check out the link in the show notes.